Well, we'll uh, we'll get started. Um, no, the pre- the previous service went a little long. I talked to that guy and talked to that guy, but his his heart is hard, and you can't you can't get anything through his thick skull. Uh, you just you just can't. So. Uh, so as in our text, then I sigh deeply uh, when I'm done thinking about myself. Um, let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to have words from you. Or a description of um, where we are and where we live and particularly in this section of the book of Revelation uh, the nature of local churches and their strengths and weaknesses in your relationship to such places in your word to such places and such people and we, uh, we ask that you would uh, bless our discussion this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to definitely uh, not run out of time before we get to... There's a, there's, there's a place in this particular letter where uh, the issues that are raised, I think, are very, very worthy of a discussion that I'm, I'm afraid is a complex discussion and that, you know, we'll not be able to uh, be contained all that effectively, but still, I think it's, it's, a, it's worthwhile to get for sure uh, to that discussion and to have a little uh, piece of it. Um, and, it's near, and it's near the end, so I better pace myself as we... Uh, as we head through this, uh, but as I've already mentioned, to to uh, you know to help justify myself with the Bill Bradley uh, illustration one more time, that title, a sense of where you are in Revelation two and three. Uh, Revelation two and three is really a great place for reminding yourself giving yourself a sense of where you are when you are in a local church. Um, Local churches, by and large, are are not impressive places. Um, You know, we have have many impressive churches uh, uh, on paper, right, in the United States, uh, but those places that uh, really look impressive and that are big and and shiny, they, they, they are they are a tiny percentage of of local churches. The actual, I think, average size of a local church still in the United States is around 70, 80 people. Uh, it's not a huge. Thing uh, even and that factors in all those places you know that have thirty five thousand uh, and so forth and so there's a lot there's a lot of places where if you were part of it uh, you would not pull into the parking lot and and think wow this is a really impressive place I, I thought I've, I've been involved uh, when, when I was born I was born into First Covenant Church in Rockford and then we went to the Wonder Lake Bible Church, and then I went to a small free church, Fort St. James Evangelical Free Church, and then uh, kind of a first Im- sort of impressive church. I was a part of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, and then uh, back to the uh, Wonder Lake Bible Church when Shirley and I married, and then um, uh, First Evangelical Free Church of Arlington Heights, which is now known as the Orchard and is quite famous on the radio through Colin Smith, um, and uh, and and then 
Center Grove uh, Evangelical Free Church, a little country church about eight miles north of Storm Lake, Iowa, and then here, and then here. And um, in all of those places, all of those places, right, are really a mixed bag. Every single church that anybody's a part of, um, the more involved you are, the more you know what a mixed bag it is. Um, and, and you meet that in these letters. Every one of these churches is, is something of um, a mixed bag. Um, and, and let me just read the uh, opening little introduction to this letter. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Um, The one who holds the seven stars in his hand. Now that little introduction about holding the seven stars in his hand and walking amongst the lampstands, that is to remind people of all of the formulaic introductions to prophetic words throughout the Old Testament. Um, uh, the one that, uh, that, that I wrote down is... Uh, to read to you, and th- this is the this is what the kind of word that John has in the back of his mind, and that those who are familiar at all with the Old Testament would have in the back of their mind. So here's uh, Amos one six. Thus says the Lord: For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke his punishment. This business about having the, se- the, the, the seven stars in his hand, walking amongst the lampstands, the whole business of the vision from verses 12 to 16 is all just to make the parallel between thus says the Lord. Who is speaking to the church? Well, it's the person envisioned In that vision, it's the Lord. Thus says the Lord. So this is the Lord Jesus who reigns in heaven such that he's got the seven stars in his hands, which are later going to be referred to as angels. So somehow there's an angelic representation to these churches, exactly how... uh, Churches are related to angels or to countries or to peoples is is not anywhere clearly spelled out in the Bible other than that it is so. So the angel of Persia, the angel of this, the angel of that. Uh, So there's some kind of angelic connection often between a human body of people and uh, this angelic being Uh, that has some kind of a representative role, which is those who work hardest on talking about this, that's the best they can come up with. Um, I I don't find it terribly helpful. I don't expect you to find it terribly helpful. But the, the, the meaningful part is this. The idea of it is that Jesus is sovereign enough that he is over angels. He holds the seven angels in his hand. That's what really matters here. He is a really powerful, important voice as he speaks to these churches. He is the infinite Son of God. He's already been described in this sequence as the first and the last the living one. And that 
is what's really surprising. And this is back to our little phrase, a sense of where you are when you are in church. Um, uh, our, own, our own Bill Minky was raised in a, chlor- uh, a church, Shell Creek. Shell Creek. Um, it's like my first church. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And one of our interns actually served Shell Creek, and so I went there um, and uh, preached uh, an installation service there in the church where Bill was raised and, uh, and, and really enjoyed it. And, of course, on an installation service, you know, you see a, a country church uh, with a lot more people in it than it has on the average Sunday, you know, and so you you're you're seeing at their most spec you're seeing them at their most spectacular, which is not all that spectacular. Um, but here's the thing: those kinds of nowhere places, the imagery here is. Jesus walks in the midst of places like that. That's a gold lampstand sort of place if it actually preaches the gospel. Those little churches that meet in the Gare communities out in the middle of nowhere that I mentioned, talking about what Hete is uh, doing out there. To the extent that they're genuinely tied into the gospel, maybe there's 14 people in meeting there on a Sunday. Jesus walks in the midst of such places. That is the big picture here. And that's what doesn't seem to be the case, right? This is, this is why some, this, these introductions are so important. Because it's easy to come to believe in a society like ours that churches are simply nowhere places. They're not worth your time. They're not worth anybody's time. They are nowhere. They're nothing. They, they, are, they are completely inconsequential. You can't even... Describe how unimportant they are, say, as compared with, you know, all the roaring stadiums that we had yesterday for college football or for the Major League Baseball playoffs, right? Oh, man, you know, this is the playoffs and everything is sold out and, and the fans are electric because... Baseball is almost unbelievably important, as is college football. There's bands and packed stadiums and television coverage and people whose whole career it is to talk about such things to millions of people at once. And there's nothing easier in the world than for us to believe those really are big, important things. And then you go on a Sunday morning to Shell Creek Church. And what's that? It's nothing. It's nothing. Well, all of these churches within the Roman Empire were way more like Shell Creek than they are like a playoff game or a football game, major college. They're nothing like that. Um, um, They are these isolated places, but Jesus, Jesus walks among them. And again, as we'll find out, and as we do know, and they're filled with sinful people, they're flawed, people are inconsistent, 
People are disappointing. Yes, 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 and yes, they are. They are. And that's, that's perfectly true of the church at Ephesus, as we are about to see. So first of all, uh, notice what the Lord knows. Notice what the Lord knows. He knows their works. He knows their works. So he opens with a commendation. This is what's, this is what's right about them. Uh, he knows their works. Uh, they keep at spiritual things with patient endurance in a, in a culture that doesn't have much interest in those things. I know your works and the labor and the patience or your long-suffering but, and your patience, your endurance, and that you're not able to put up with evil. And you test those calling themselves apostles and they, and they are not. Uh, now all of those things are, are, are quite important. Um, all of those things are quite important. Um, and, and we have a tendency... Um, to not be super at, at any of the things that they're being commended for. Uh, but, but, but that's true of many of you, those commendations. You're active, you're involved, you're doing things for the Lord, uh, and when you feel like giving up, you, you, you don't give up. Uh, you, you, keep, you keep doing them, uh, you stay... You stay, you stay at them, um, and he and he commends you for that. And uh, and and when you experience all the disappointing uh, uh, aspects of other people in the church, you continue to attend it anyway. And he commends you uh, for that. And when you experience opposition, you know, to your witness, you continue. To give your witness out anyway. And he commends you for that. Um, and then he goes on. And, 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 he, and he also. He, he just says that. He. Um, uh, he likes it. That we allow. The Bible. To shape us. You know. Rather than. The culture we live in. You know, so they, they are not putting up with placing into practice everything the Roman Empire says they ought to place into practice. Uh, they're not all that willing to participate in emperor worship. Uh, they're not all that uh, willing you know, to uh, uh, participate in uh, cult prostitution sort of things that had been normal in some of their pagan lives and that remain normal in, in, their, in their families' lives, they're, they're, not, they're not doing that. So in our, in our day, it would be like, we're not falling straight in line you know, with the cultural Marxism that absolutely just dominates the landscape of where we live. However... That influence has seeped a lot deeper into us uh, than we often even realize. A few months ago, you may have seen it in a. Uh, it was a. It was a bit of a, um, a news story in conservative uh, Christian circles. Um, um, in the uh, a representative. Of, uh, from South Carolina named Nancy Mace got up at the South, South Carolina prayer breakfast and, uh, and, and, and she was one of the speakers. And so uh, she announced, you know, at the prayer breakfast, you know, that uh, she was um, 
Um, you know, she, she didn't say it exactly like this, but this is essentially what she said. You know, I'm uh, here to speak at the uh, prayer breakfast, and oh, and by the way, I'm living a fornicating lifestyle. I'm a fornicating speaker. You know, I'm a, I'm a fornication Christian. I'm a Christian living in fornication, and, uh, and I go about speaking at prayer breakfast while announcing to everybody that I'm living in fornication uh, with my fiancé at the same time. So wonderful to be your speaker here today. Um, um, I, uh, I am here sort of representing, you know, Christian fornicators of America. Um, see, this, this says, the church at Ephesus said, no, 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 no. We're, no, we're not okay with that. No, we're not. Now, there are tons of churches in America that are okay with that. I mean, it's happening everywhere, but it's even, I mean, I, I mean it's being approved of many, many places. Many, many places and beyond. But these people are being commended from at Ephesus at least. They are not, they are not putting up with that kind of thing. They are calling that for what it is. They are calling that false. They are warning people, you can't think that way and actually be a Christian. Say, well, that's a little harsh. Well, no, no, that's a little obvious, right? Um, That's the kind of thing. This is what Paul is talking about, for instance. You can see there in your text. Look with me at Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Galatians 5, 19 to 21. But the works of the flesh are manifest, which are. Notice number one on the list. Fornication. Uncleanness. Bachery, idolatry. He runs down. He runs down the list. And then he closes at the end of verse 21 with this. And I say, as I said before that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So, in other words, Paul is saying, somebody announces themselves, I am a Christian fornicator. It's just the way I do things. I mean, I'm as warm as anybody. I sing the praise songs right at the top of my lungs. Uh, But I, I tend to have uh, sex with people that I'm not married to pretty much any time I like. That's what I'm going to do. I'm a Christian who does that. Do you hear what Paul says to them? No, you're not. No, you're not. Because those who actually practice that as their lifestyle, they will not inherit the kingdom of God Period. That's what he says. Well, you see, that's a message that these lampstands are supposed to repeat. That's how it goes in the moral world of King Jesus. That's how it goes. And churches are places that say that kind of thing out loud. And the church's Ephesus was that kind of place. They're saying that kind of thing out loud. And it was, um, it was not a, um, necessarily a winning thing to do then, as it may not be a winning thing to do now, but Jesus approves of it. And so it's, At least eschatologically, it's a winning thing. It's a winning thing in the end. 
It's, it's the actual right way to go. Um, and he knows that these people are doing these kinds of things and that they're also persevering in them. Okay, so now we'll begin to approach where we're going to have our discussion. So this is one step closer to it, and it'll be in the next, uh, in the next section that we'll get to our spot, say a few things, and then open, open up to see what um, any feedback you may or may not have. Notice what, hold, what he holds against these, this church. Um, they left their first love. They left their first love. Now, the vast majority of commentators um, believe that the emphasis here falls on what in um, Matthew 22, 34 to 40, you know, that's where the guy comes to Jesus and says, what's the great commandment? And Jesus says, the great commandment is, and then he quotes Deuteronomy uh, uh, 6.4 to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul with all your mind and all your strength and then he comes back around though and says and to love your neighbor as yourself the bulk of commentators on the book of Revelation believe that though both of those commandments may be in line and I would, I, I would be among those who would say I think they're both there but I don't disagree they probably do have primarily in their mind, um, you're, not, you're not hanging on to your love for people like you should. So you've left your first love. You used to really, really love people, very outreach-oriented sort of thing. In fact, uh, um, my favorite commentary in the book of Revelation, the most majestic commentary theologically ever uh, written on it is Greg Beale. And Greg Beale uh, spends like four page arguing that your first love was evangelism. Um, and, uh, and, that, and they're not evangelizing anymore. And, I, and I've read that over five times. And, uh, and, and most of what Beale says about Revelation, I, I find to be quite persuasive. And I just haven't been able to persuade myself uh, that that everybody else is wrong, and that he's right on thinking that it's evangelism uh, here. Uh, evangelism is probably a, a part of the application of it. But here's the, here's the thing that I think is more likely to be going on. Now, notice what this church has really been commended for. They're persevering, they're doers, and they stand for the truth. Now, those are all, as Jesus says, those are all excellent things. But the problem with sinners who stand for the truth is that we have a tendency, a strong tendency, to start to having quite a bit of trouble of loving people that disagree with us persistently. We don't like being disagreed with. Uh, And we don't like people who disagree with us. Uh, and, um, and, And we can start to be unfair with people who disagree with us. In fact, we're kind of wired that way. We're wired that way. Um, uh, you'll, you've heard us, because uh, as a, uh, right now, in fact, our staff is still reading together um, John Frame's The Doctrine of the Christian Life, which is his um, uh, book on the Ten Commandments, really half, literally exactly half the book is on the, uh, on the Ten Commandments, 465 pages of 930 pages around the Ten Commandments. But, but Dr. Frame, Dr. Frame is an especially great model of not having this happen to you. Dr. Frame is extremely loving and kind toward 
those who disagree with him, as, as, as many do, and he, and he handles the thoughts and, and uh, opinions of his opponents with uh, great meekness and kindness and fairness. He's just, just, just impressive. But now, what made him that way, I think, more than anything else, is that his hero, and he would, he, Frame is still alive, he's in his 80s, and if you, if you asked him, uh, who, is your, who is your theological hero growing up, he would not have to hesitate. He would say, Cornelius Van Til. And, and if you asked him, um, uh, who do you think was the most significant theological voice of the 20th century, he would say, Cornelius Van Til. Uh, he wrote a, he wrote a, a 450-page book arguing that that's exactly uh, who Cornelius Van Til is. Um, and, then, and then if you asked him, uh, how much have you tried to model the style and attitudes of your hero, Cornelius Van Til, toward theological opponents? He would say, well, not at all. I've made it my practice in life to do exactly the opposite of my hero, who argued vociferously, often unfairly, often punitively, um, constantly, angrily, um, and was not was not above uh, slandering uh, people who disagreed with him in even more personal matters and implying all kinds of things that nobody else would have ever deduced from the positions he was arguing against. So this is, this starts to push in toward what I think is central here. And But before we pause there, I want to go and state the other side of it because there's no easy solution to this issue um, that's, that's raised. So let's, uh, let's just go to Matthew 5.44, right? So this is, um, uh, this is Jesus. This was Jesus' word to Cornelius Van Til, who no doubt uh, had this memorized in, uh, in, in English and in Dutch and in Greek. Um, I guarantee you he had it memorized in at least those three languages, and maybe, and maybe several more. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray in behalf of those persecuting you. And in certain circles, Van Til's life just said to that, no. And he would have said, the truth is more important than most people think. Well, that's true. The truth is more important than most people think. Um, now, we're, we, are, we are a conservative we are a conservative group of people, um, and uh, and we uh, and we're we're living in our, our our culture, by and large in our church. We're predominantly conservative, uh, politically congregation. I don't know how anybody votes, but I hear conversations, so I have a pretty good idea. Uh, we're very 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 conservative. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we and, and most of us are, 
semi, you know, connected to popular sources of information and so forth. And so we, uh, we may, uh, I'm not going to survey you, but I, I would just quite a number of us, we listen to things like talk radio and, um, uh, and, and NPR and all kinds of uh, place, all kinds of things like that. I, I personally try to discipline myself to go back and forth uh, between those two things quite quite regularly. And so on uh, on, uh, on, on, on NPR, um, evangelical Christians are they're 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 marginal people. They're they don't mean well. Uh, they, they don't. They, they don't. They don't mean well, but they don't, but they are ignorant. So you got that. Um, uh, and so it's not like they're viciously. They don't. They don't. They don't mean well. But it, it's pretty nuanced. Like what? What do you think of them? It's. It's when you, when you're listening, they say everything in a fairly sophisticated way. On NPR, they got lots of time. There's no commercials. Um, which is a big, a big, huge ex- ex- advantage, right? And so you do hear it's a much more in-depth kind of discussion. Uh, well, then, 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 so then you slip over there. You've been listening to that, and um, uh, what do they well, over on talk radio? What do they think about evangelicals? They vote the right way. They vote the right way. In fact, they're, they're about the most consistent voting the right way group of people in the country. So they're, they're pretty wonderful, actually. They vote the right way. They're, 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 quite, they're quite wonderful people. Um, um, and what should, what should they know about the NPR crowd? Oh, well, they should know, and they do know. They're dumb. They're dumb. They're dumb over there. They're the dumbest people you can imagine. There's nothing as dumb as a liberal. Liberals are dumb. They're really dumb. They're super dumb. They're super evil dumb. That's what they are. And beyond that, they're not really Americans anyway. But they live in America in a dumb way. And we take this in. And if you're not very, very careful in schooling yourself from the word of God, that's what you think. And that's how you think. And you don't like these people anymore. You don't like them at all. You certainly don't love them. They think ill of you. And they do. They do. To a degree. They do. They thought ill of the Christians in the first century. They're odd. They're odd. They're an offshoot of a Jewish sect. We don't think much of the Jews. And the Jews don't think much of them. So nobody thinks much of them. And yet these are the very people that we are to be a lampstand in the midst of. And we're supposed to keep that in mind. Now, let's jump to the next section, and this is where we'll pause, because this is where the plot thickens and truly becomes difficult. Truly, truly becomes difficult. And and we as believers are to see here that what we're really being called to have is nothing short, nothing else will do, but believers who actually develop a fair bit of spiritual wisdom. Um, Because we can't do what we're asked to do without it. Notice verses 5b and 6. Um, remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen, and repent 
and do the first works. I mean, remember, all of these pagans that are now in the church were quite recently pagans. So they were loved into the church by Christian people, uh, willing to challenge their lifestyle and deal with their pushback without coming to hate them. That's how they got there. Do the first works. Keep doing what brought you there in the first place. Do the first works. Otherwise, I will come and I'll remove your lampstand from its place if you don't repent. And then he comes around and says this, but this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Uh Uh-oh. So now, well, let's let's just look at um, the textual background for that kind of thing. There's nowhere better than Psalm 139, 21. So we'll go there, and then we'll set the stage for this discussion, and then open and, and, and get a little feedback. Um, so Psalm 139, verse 21. Or 139, yeah, verse, 20, uh, verse 21. The psalmist says, speaking to the Lord, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now somebody like C.S. Lewis is prone to say, yeah, he should have never said that. This is where you don't, you can't really follow the psalmist. That's just why, you know, um, you know, it's best not to be an inerrantist because that's, no, 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 no. This is him letting himself get away with himself. This is, this this this, uh, this this is this is him being Mark Levin. Um, you know, well, you know, no. uh, uh, But but I don't think it is that. I don't think you're supposed to think that's what it is. Uh, I don't think you're supposed to say that's what think that's what it is at all. This is he's this is this is right, and loving your neighbor is right. Well, you can't do them both together. Oh, but here in the, it's clear that Jesus thinks you can. In fact, it's clear Jesus demands that we do. That we hang on to our first love for people all around us. And we still hate things that people do. And that they call, they, they believe are, are, are wonderful. They say, well, how, how, how does that work? Well, you know, we, we put it, and, and you, you can tell that there's something in this formula uh, that's at least approaching the truth by, by how much the opponents of Christianity hate this formula. They hate, they really, really hate it when somebody says, you must love the sinner and hate the sin. No, you can't. No, 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 no. That's ridiculous. That's evil. That's, that's a clue. That's a clue. Because that seems to be exactly the combination of things that you have here. So here's, here, here's, here's just, just take an example of uh, of this, and uh, and by the time you know, I'm, I don't, I don't. Um, we're all we're all you know faced with uh, with this kind of thing. I mentioned to the guys on Thursday morning that when my my brother-in-law gave his testimony before me for the first time was at the um, 
groom's dinner uh, the night before he married my sister. Um, and his family was up there, and I don't have time to recount the story. But among those in the, in the group there that night was his older brother, Stephen. And, and Stephen was a very openly, uh, very, very flamboyant sort of uh, homosexual. He was a New York dancer, um, and, uh, and he was out for this wedding, and, and he listened to, um, you know, to this testimony, and, um, and, uh, and he wasn't overly um, thrilled um, with what his brother was saying. Really nobody in the family was at that, at that point on his side of the family. None of them were. It was all pretty strange. He had become a religious kook. And uh, and that's and, and and that's that, but uh, but Stephen was very visibly like <clears throat> enduring this um, this evening. Um, uh, but this is this was 1982, and by. Uh, by the by, about 1987, uh, Stephen was uh, in the last stages of dying of AIDS uh, there in New York City, and um, um, and my brother-in-law uh, went to see him, share the gospel with him. And he did, pleaded with him. Um, And he thought that Stephen had some openness. Um, Now, if if you know my brother-in-law at all, he has his strong views about everything. Everything. Uh, He has extremely strong views uh, about the sexual revolution uh, and about the normalization of homosexuality. Um, uh, very, very, very strong views that he'd be willing to tell you about at the drop of a hat. Uh, um, but, but there he is. There he is with his brother. Um, assuring him, hey, you just come to faith. You know, turn from your sin, announce. Look, you're at, the, you're at the end. What do you got to lose? Come on. Come on. So to hate the normalization of homosexuality as a lifestyle while loving people who practice homosexuality, is it possible? And the answer is, yes, it's possible. But this is, what raises, this is what raises the issue of difficulty. When you watch us try to do it, how do we tend to do it? Very badly. Right? So we do it one way or the other. We say that we love people that we really don't love, or we prove that we love people by approving everything they do. And do you see in this text that he is closing the door? He's slamming the door on both of those tendencies we have. Nope, you can't do either one. You do have to hate certain sinful lifestyles. You have to. And you have to love people at the same time. And how do you do that? That's our question. So, do you see the dif- do you see the difficulty? Do you see the difficulty and what a And and here it is. It's in the first century. He's just told them. He's just told them. 
You need to become loving more, more loving people. Unless we misunderstand him. He turns right around and says, but I do commend you for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know much about what the Nicolaitans believed, particularly, but we do know what their practices were. They tended to be very prone to fit in with the Roman Empire, so they compromised with Roman political things, and they compromised on, uh, with, with Roman moral expression of sexual things. So very contemporary they are. They're very parallel, which is what you'd expect, right? In big fundamental things, there is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, That's what they were doing. They were doing the very thing that is surrounding us right now. The very challenge that's surrounding us right now. Um, uh, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, but you've got to love people. You've got to love God. You've got to love people. Any, any comments or questions about that? Barb. No, I, I, I think that, no, that's a that's a great that, that that's a great illustration. Um, but but I think in the in the text, what you're really told you have to do is distinguish somehow, which is not an easy thing, between the movement and the individual manifestations of the movement. In other words you still have to try to love the individual manifestation of the movement while being right to hate the movement. And it's doing that that is so challenging and so difficult, but it is the thing that's being commended here. 
to be loving without without pandering you know it's 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 one of the things that you see a couple of weeks ago and we're we're out of time but Jesus dealing with the Syrophoenician woman you know I don't think he I don't think he has any intention to just be insulting to her. I know he doesn't. That's not, he has no, is, I mean, he, that's not where he's at theologically. That's just not where he's at. So what's he doing? You know, it's not right to throw the children's bread uh, to the dogs. What's he doing? He's making purely a theological point. The only way to be right with God is through the God, it's, you've got to know him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or you can't know him at all. And she crosses that line without difficulty. Oh, yes, well, but wouldn't it be fine for uh, the children's bread to be given to the dogs that are under the table? And he thinks... You've just embraced the distinction that God made. You've embraced it completely and said, no, I'm, I'm still willing. I, I want help from that God. And she is speaking better than she knew. Uh, right? She's speaking better than she knew. And, um, and in, in this... It, it's it, it's the same, right? I mean, most. Well, you you can. It's right on the surface of things, right? The the activist community doesn't tell you what's going on at all in the mind of the average person, and heart of the average person. Not at all. Not at all. Um, my uh, my foster brother Raymond. Of course, he was terribly sexually abused from the time he moved in the time he was born until he moved into our house when he was nine and uh, and then he stayed there till he was 14 and then at 14 he could decide to leave well we had a lot more rules than his uh, alcoholic mother uh, would have and in Canada if you have the child you get you know 40, 50, 50 years ago, you got like, you know, $182 a month per child. Well, if, if, if you're like his mom and you're a drunk and that, the, you, you get his check, $482. So she was eager to have him come back. And so, well, but anyway, so in a short period of time, you know, Raymond is back down there in Vancouver and then he's in trouble and then he robs a bank. Um, and then he dies of AIDS in prison. And we communicated a little bit. Um, and he, he, I mean, he would never, he would never have even, he would not talk to me about his, he would have never, ever, 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 talked about his homosexuality he was too ashamed of it to ever talk about it never would he I mean he would no no he just wanted you to pretend like you didn't know please just pretend like you have no idea um that's where he was it was not hard to love him it was not hard to love him um but he he wasn't he wasn't marching around, right? Now he would have been willing to march around in the right set of circumstances, but he wasn't. He was dying in prison. Um, but all of that to say, that's the issue here. And at the end, the final word, seven times in a row, let him who has ears to hear hear. He's saying, so you got to get this. You got to love people and hate evil at the same time. And it's challenging. 
but it's what we've got to do. And we're, we're way over time, so I better just close this. <laughs> Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, gather around your word. And as we go our ways, I pray that you'd go with us in Jesus' name. Amen.